Our reading this evening is 2 Timothy and chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and commencing at the first verse. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemous, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. From such, turn away. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Janes and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith, but they shall proceed no further, for their folly shall be manifest unto all men, as theirs also was. But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. And as ever, we trust that the Lord will add his own particular and special blessing to the reading of his holy word. Amen. Well, this evening we are undertaking our fourth study in the second letter of Paul to Timothy. We've already completed a study of the first letter to Timothy, and it's my hope and desire that we shall be able to study his letter to Titus also in due course, perhaps before the year's out. And these three epistles, as I've mentioned before, are often referred to together as the pastoral epistles, perhaps not only because they are addressed to some early Christian pastors, but also because they provide us all 
as to both the qualifications and the responsibilities of those who lead God's work. We know that both Timothy and Titus were Paul's sons in the faith, and we also know that they both had pastoral responsibility, Timothy at Ephesus and Titus on the Isle of Crete. And we know that Paul wrote to them with the intention of helping them to ensure that whatever took place in those churches for which they were responsible would be pleasing and acceptable in God's sight. In our last study, we considered the second half of 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we saw then how important it is to be approved unto God and to be workmen who need not to be ashamed. We also saw in our last study how we should highly esteem those men who rightly divide the word of truth, men who oppose false teaching. And we saw how we all ought not to be vessels unto dishonour, but vessels unto honour, meet for the master's use and prepared unto every good work. Well, this evening we shall be considering the whole of 2 Timothy chapter 3, and I hope that we will see from the scriptures how we might identify those who might have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. And I also trust that we will help to identify those men who are true leaders of God's people. And I trust that all of us will be reminded of the inspiration and the profitability of Scripture and how it should affect believers' lives. First of all, we need to consider what Paul meant when he told Timothy this, that in the last days, perilous times shall come. Now, did the apostle think that they were themselves living in the last days, or was he referring to some future time? Well, I think it's true to say that some New Testament saints did believe that they were living in the last days, believing that the return of the Lord Jesus was imminent. But we have to say that this has also been the belief of many other saints in many other generations. If you were to take a poll amongst believers today, you would find that a significant number would tell you that they believe that we are living in the last days, that wickedness has grown to such an extent that it cannot be long before the Lord Jesus returns. But this was also the case in former generations. And so it may be that we should understand the last days to be the whole period between the Lord's first advent and his second advent. In 2 Peter 3, verses 3 and 4, we see that the apostle Peter uh, speaks of scoffers in the last days who would, and I quote, say, "'Where is the promise of his coming?' For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. But we see further on in that same chapter, we see from verse 9, that the Lord will not return and cannot return until all of his people have been saved. It won't be until the very last person elected to salvation has been saved that the Lord will 
return for his church. The church wouldn't be complete without every single one of his people being saved. Well, I think we must, uh, we may account ourselves as living in the last days, that time before the Lord Jesus returns, and thus we should live our lives accordingly, redeeming the time, expecting to see those things that the scriptures tell us will be evident in the last days. We should all be interested in the Lord's second advent. Now Paul told Timothy to expect to see men who were driven by love of self more than by love of God and for their fellow men. And as we shall see, he was primarily referring to false teachers. But the sins of which false teachers were guilty of can be equally true of others also. Paul wrote this, For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce-breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. From such, turn away. Now, self-love is a root cause of all the bad qualities to which Paul refers here, but before we consider them individually, we need to be very aware that self-love is actually being advocated by some professing Christian teachers today. And their argument states that believers' lives can be stunted by lack of self-esteem and lack of self-worth and lack of self-fulfillment and lack of self-image. But this is teaching of the most pernicious kind and it's been adopted from ungodly secular psychology. These modern-day false teachers maintain that we cannot love God and our fellow men until we learn to love ourselves. But this flies in the face of biblical truth which teaches against pride of any sort and which shows us that at our very best we are but unprofitable servants doing only that which is our duty to do. The Bible enjoins us to be humble whereby we esteem others better than ourselves. Paul told this to the Philippians. He said, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And from this we see that we need to relegate self. We need to work for the benefit of others. And so that question arises, do we do this? Now those who love themselves who want to spend their money on themselves, they are covetous, being overly interested in money and what money can buy. Those who love themselves like to tell of their own accomplishments, being boastful or braggarts. And those who love themselves will be conceited, proud, arrogant. Now, would it surprise you to know that there are people who may seem to be humble, but who are inwardly arrogant? secretly believing that they are better than everyone else and such people can be contemptuous of others in their hearts insofar as they really believe that other people fall far short of the standards to which they themselves have attained 
So where do we stand on that point? Are we amongst those who sometimes resent the fact that others are not as faithful as we are and not as obedient to the scriptures as we are? May we determine in our hearts to resist spiritual pride and to truly believe that anything we have and any standard to which we have attained is because God has been very gracious to us, more gracious than we deserve. It's all to do with the grace of God. Those who love self will be blasphemers, meaning here that they will be quick to revile others, ever ready to slander others, to abuse them verbally. Those who love themselves will not find it difficult to speak evil of others. But what about those whom Paul describes as being disobedient to parents? Was he referring to those who at the time were disobedient children or to those who had been disobedient when they were younger? Well, it could be either. Children who are indulged, whose parents take their part even when they're in the wrong, who are taught to love themselves from their earliest years, will have no qualms about eventually rebelling against their own parents. And those who can easily rebel against their own parents will have no qualms about being rebellious generally. Now in the Old Testament dispensation, there were severe penalties for children who disobeyed their parents, showing us how much importance God attaches to respect for parents. The training up of children is a tremendous responsibility, which if we get it wrong, can result in lasting, permanent problems. Similarly, if children have been taught from an early age that they deserve the very best out of life, it's no wonder that they have no sense of gratitude for what they receive. And here in 2 Timothy, Paul was probably referring to unthankful adults, those who felt that they merited all the good things that they'd received. And thus they would have denigrated the grace of God, which is apparent, is it not, not only in salvation, but also in the provision made for us all, in all areas of our lives. Now the word which is translated as unholy, at the end of verse 2 here in 2 Timothy, is the Greek word anosios. And this word does not so much denote irreligious behaviour, as indecent behaviour. Those who believe that they're entitled to gratify themselves in any way that pleases them will have no qualms about promiscuous or indecent behaviour. Now with regard to those whom Paul describes here as being without natural affection, you may recall that in his Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus said, If ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same. And the Lord was referring there to the natural affection that usually exists amongst family and friends. But it is possible to lack even that, to lack natural affection, to be so self-centred as to care little or nothing for anyone else, including members of your family. With regard to truce-breaking, the dictionary describes a truce as a suspension of hostilities, an armistice, we might say. And every year we're reminded of the armistice which took effect at 11 o'clock on the 11th day of the 11th month in 1918. And thus we can see that the truce breakers, to whom Paul refers to, will be those who are implacable, 
those who are unwilling to be at peace with others. And they so believe in the superiority of their own position that their egotism precludes them from accommodating anything else. And you may know, if you studied history, that one of the most infamous examples of truce-breaking was the revocation of the Edict of Nantes in 1685, which resulted in the persecutions of the Huguenots in France. The Greek word translated here as false accusers in the authorised version is the word diabolos. And we can see the connection between the devil, the accuser of the brethren, and those men who falsely accuse others. In the Old Testament we see those who falsely accused Naboth. In the New Testament we see those who falsely accused the Lord Jesus. And Paul himself was present at the martyrdom of Stephen, another man who had been falsely accused. Incontinent can mean more than one thing, and here in 2 Timothy it refers to those who lack self-restraint. Those who only care about themselves won't really care what others think about them, and will act without inhibition, we might say. We've seen this to be true in the case of some famous people whose fame has gone to their heads and whose lives have spiralled out of control, sometimes even leading to their early deaths. Now, fierceness is the opposition of mildness. Those who are fierce being savage, we might say, in their treatment of others. Self-love can render a person insensitive and uncaring towards others. We might say they would be willing to steamroll at others to get their own way. Those governed by self-love can, be sp- can become despisers of those that are good. Because of their high opinion of themselves, self-lovers look down on most everybody else, finding fault especially with those people who are genuinely good. And self-lovers can even betray those close to them, holding their own interest paramount. Now we might find that difficult to believe, but did not the Lord just him Lord Jesus himself speak of the fact that, and I quote, the brother shall deliver up the brother to death and the father the child, and the children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. Self-lovers can be heady, meaning that they will act rashly or recklessly, caring little for the effect of their behaviour on others. They can be high-minded or conceited, believing that if they are right, then everyone else is wrong, having an inflated opinion of themselves. Self-lovers will be hedonistic, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, and, and gratifying themselves irrespective of what God might think of their behaviour. Now, I'm not suggesting that anyone here this evening should be deemed to be in the same mould as those to whom Paul was referring. But this last fault does appear to me to be something that believers must take care not to be guilty of. For example, if ever we elect to miss one of the regular church meetings so that we can do something else that we enjoy more perhaps, could we not be guilty of being lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God? It's something worth thinking about. Now, as I mentioned earlier, Paul was primarily referring to false teachers 
when he described the behavior of those acting out of self-love. And he goes on to describe them as follows. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. From such turn away. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and leave captive silly women laden with sins, led away with divers lusts, ever learning, and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Well, there are men who may at first sight appear to be spiritual, but whose behaviour demonstrates that they have never undergone that life-changing experience that makes a man want to serve and to please God above everything else. Such men do not witness to the power of God in their lives, but rather witness to the fact that they cannot have been converted, both by the doctrine that they espouse and by the lifestyles that they follow. Such men are to be avoided. We should have nothing to do with them. From such, turn away. From amongst this class of people are those people who creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with divers lusts. Now, many commentators have taken this to mean that false teachers will beguile some women into believing false doctrines, that they will worm their way into families by taking advantage of the gullibility of the weaker sex. They point to how Eve was a softer target than Adam, and perhaps we ourselves have known women who have been led astray by some who we might label as spiritual conmen. Now, many years ago, uh, I remember a lady in London who was convinced that a particular Pentecostal preacher had the gift of healing. And she seemed to be a very godly woman, but she was nonetheless taken in. However, I think that Paul may have been speaking here of men who, under the guise of religion, take advantage of naive women sexually. Some men prey upon vulnerable women, and some of those professing to be spiritual leaders have used their positions to satisfy their own base desires. Now, is it really true to say that, generally speaking, women are more gullible than men when it comes to being able to identify false teachers? Or is what we have here before us just an example of what modern women might term anti-feminist? <clears throat> well, if you look at the makeup of groups who have, who have come under the spell of false teachers, you'll find, generally speaking, that there is a disproportionate number of women in their ranks. And it can often be the case that it was the charismatic character of the false teacher that drew them into his web of false teaching in the first place. You may also have come across some ladies who have flitted from place to place, moving from the camp of one false teacher to another. I've heard such people sometimes being referred to as spiritual gypsies because they always seem to be on the move. Now, Whilst both men and women can fall into this category, we mustn't lose sight of the fact that Paul identifies the weaker sex here as being most likely to succumb to false teachers. And he goes on to describe those who do succumb as ever learning 
and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. As I've already said, we may have some personal knowledge of, of ladies who have flitted from place to place on flights of fancy, as it were, but sadly those ladies have seldom, if ever, come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, false teachers have been around since earliest times, as we can see from that account in Exodus, and it's recorded in Exodus 7 and verse 11, which reads thus, Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers. Now the magicians of Egypt, they also did in like manner with their enchantments. And Jewish historians tell us that the name of those two magicians were Janes and Jambres. So when Paul wrote these words, and I quote, As Janes and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth, men of corrupt minds, reprobate concerning the faith. But they shall proceed no further, for their folly shall be manifest unto all men, as theirs was also. And from this we can see the parallel between Moses being opposed, always stood by evil men, and men of the new covenant being similarly opposed. Janes and Jambres were able to produce counterfeit miracles, but in the end they weren't able to reduce what Moses by the power of God was able to perform. Eventually it became apparent that they weren't of the same caliber as Moses and they weren't channels of the power of God as was Moses. And so it will be in New Testament times. There will come a point when the folly of four teachers will become clear, men of whom it says that they resist or oppose the truth, men with corrupt or depraved minds such as have been disqualified by God forever, coming to a true faith because of their wickedness. Now, you may recall that at the start of this message, I said that I hoped that we would be able to see from the scriptures how we might identify those who have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof, and that we will be helped to identify those men who are true leaders of God's people. Well, I think we've, given a lot of inf- we've been given a lot of information as to how we might recognise false teachers, and we now come to some verses which hopefully will help us to be able to recognise true Christian leaders. So after having described the characteristics of false teachers, Paul went on to write this, But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured. But out of them all, the Lord delivered me. So in sharp contrast to the self-seeking ways of false teachers, Paul reminds Timothy that he himself, Paul, had always been a faithful teacher and had lived a life of self-sacrifice. Anyone examining the teaching and the lifestyle of the Apostle Paul after his conversion could see that he was without doubt a true servant of God whose life testified of his faith and of his calling. Paul wasn't in any way boasting about his Christian life, but he was showing that he believed that what he had been, what he had taught and done ought to be 
sufficient evidence to satisfy any sceptic who might question the validity of his position. Now, how many of us could say, but thou hast known fully my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, and expect others to affirm that what they have seen in us does testify of our faith and calling. And how many of us have suffered for our faith, as Paul did? He reminded Timothy of these things, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured. But out of them all, the Lord delivered me. Now, we need to remember that Timothy actually accompanied Paul during most, if not all, of the ill treatment Paul had suffered at those places, at Antioch, Iconium and Lystra. And thus, when Paul wrote about those events, in effect saying, you know what I suffered in these places, you know what I suffered, Timothy really did know full well. But Timothy also knew how the Lord had delivered Paul. And we see Paul giving God all the glory for all his past deliverances, even though we believe he was now writing from a prison cell. Now I think we can say with some certainty that Timothy must have wondered whether the Lord would eventually deliver Paul out of the Roman emperor's hands. Though we shall see in our next study that Paul himself didn't feel that this would be the case. However, it must also surely have crossed Timothy's mind that he himself could end up in prison if he continued to emulate Paul both in doctrine and practice. For Paul said, after mentioning some of the persecutions he had suffered, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And surely this is a verse that merits our special consideration. In effect, Timothy was being reminded that if he continued to live as God wanted him to live, preaching the gospel, defending the faith, opposing false teachers, then was not he also likely to suffer as a result? And is that not the same for believers in every generation? Now, it goes without saying that we are not all called of God to be preachers and teachers, as was Timothy, but we are all called to live godly in Christ Jesus. There are no exceptions. No believer is excused from that responsibility. Now, what are we to think about ourselves if it seems that our lives are persecution-free? Do we go looking for persecution to prove our godliness? Well, it's clear that those who live godly lives won't necessarily suffer persecution all the time. We know that the Apostle Paul never suffered persecution all the time. And it's also clear from history that there have been times when the church has been persecuted more than other times. And it's clear to me at least that believers have no need to look for persecution since it will find us soon enough if we live godly lives. However, how many of us can say that we have never avoided, avoided saying or doing something because we felt that we might lose out as a result, that we might be persecuted? 
Have there been times when we know in our hearts that we should have stood up for the Lord, but we refrain from doing so? And if that's true, why was this? Were we afraid of the consequences? We will all benefit from considering this verse in coming days, and it may help us to remind us of our calling. In the last days, that time before the Lord Jesus returns, we are to expect to see an increase in false teaching. Paul wrote this, But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Thus we can expect things to go from bad to worse. And this question arises, what should be our response to this? Well, I think we can only continue to oppose false teaching, just as Timothy was instructed by Paul. Paul wrote this, But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Timothy had received instruction from the scriptures in his childhood from his mother and probably his grandmother and in later years from Paul himself. And he was told to continue to preach the gospel of God's grace and to teach wholesome doctrine, gainsaying those who taught any other gospel. Now preaching and teaching from the scriptures is of paramount importance since God has decreed that he will use his word to save sinners. We know this, do we not, from the following words that Paul wrote to the saints in Rome. He wrote these words. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? So then, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. It is the holy scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. It is the scriptures which tell us of a holy God. It is the scriptures that tell us of our sin that we have all offended that holy God. It is the scriptures that tell us that we deserve to be punished eternally because of our sin. And it's the scriptures that tell us that the only way of escape from the wrath of God that we deserve. Where would we be if we never had the scriptures? Do we count them precious? The scriptures tell us how the Lord Jesus Christ laid down his life on Calvary's cross so that all those who trust in him all those who truly repent of their sin and are truly converted can have their sins forgiven and are assured of a place in heaven when they die. It's through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and in him alone that anyone can be saved from the consequences of their sins. And it is 
the holy scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. And, you know, this is why it's so important that all our preaching and teaching should be centred on the scriptures, for they speak of Christ throughout. And the message from the scriptures thus should always be central to any corporate worship service. And, you know, it's been very sad to hear of some fellowships where the sermon has been all but dispensed with. Now, how much do we value the scriptures? Do we really believe Paul's statement that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Now, these verses are very well known. And a sermon could easily be preached on these verses just by them in in these several sermons. But this evening I just want us all to be reminded of some basic truths about the scriptures. Firstly, all of the scriptures are inspired by God. Now did you know that there are some Bible translations which say that all scripture inspired by God is profitable? Suggesting that not all scripture is inspired by God. And if that was true, how could we know what scriptures are inspired and which are not? And that mistranslation shows us once more how important it is. It's so important that we use a faithful translation of the scriptures. One that doesn't cast doubt on its own contents. Well... There are booklets produced by the Trinitarian Bible Society which deal with that subject more fully, and I commend them to you. Secondly, we should note that it was God who inspired men to write the scriptures. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, we have there these words, and I quote, No prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. When we read the scriptures, we can be sure that we are reading God's word, not the words of mere men. Now it's true that men recorded the words, but only under the direction of God the Holy Spirit. They were moved by the Holy Ghost to write what they did. Thirdly, scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And as we ever point out, we all need to be clear in our minds that when the scriptures are faithfully expounded, we must expect to be challenged by them. Someone from another fellowship once told me that whenever a certain man preached in their church, it always seemed that he was telling them off and that this man's preaching was therefore not very popular to some people. Now, it's very important for a man's ministry to be balanced, but many of us have found that if we do go through the scriptures in a systematic fashion, being careful not to gloss over things that might be difficult, we will constantly find that the scriptures do reprove us, and they do correct us. And they do instruct us in righteousness. 
telling us how we may live in such a way as to please God. We learn doctrine and we also learn how to live Christian lives worthy of our Saviour. As Paul wrote, the scriptures are written so that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. And although Paul may have had ministers particularly in mind when he wrote those words, it seems to me that they apply to us all, to all those who are part of the people of God. If we want to be men and women of God, people who want to grow in the Christian life, to become more like our Saviour who set us a perfect example, then we must follow the instructions of the Scriptures. If we want to be people who are equipped to fulfil all righteousness, then we must be obedient to God's word. All that we are and all that we do must be subject to the yardstick of God's word. Well, on that note, we've come to an end of our study in the third chapter of 2 Timothy this evening. And I trust that we have seen from our study how we might better identify those men who have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof. And I also trust that we will be better able to identify those men who are true leaders of God's people. And I trust that we've seen again the importance of profiting from the scriptures, which are not only able to make people wise unto salvation, but also to teach them how they may live lives pleasing to God. Well, may we ever be known as people of the book. Amen. Feel free to contact us at Sovereign Grace Church in Tiverton. Email us at grace2seekers at gmail.com. That's grace2seekers at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can visit our website at www.sovereigngracereformedchurch.co.uk.